This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dorothy Wickham. Dorothy is a Solomon Islands journalist based in Honiara, and she joined me to tell us what life is really like in Solomon Islands. She shares what the political realities are, as well as the domestic concerns of Solomon Islanders, as their country finds itself in the middle of a geopolitical tussle between China, the US and Australia. Her essay in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine is called The View from Solomon Islands. Our priority is running water, not geopolitics. It's a delight and a pleasure to be joined today by a very special guest, Dorothy Wickham. Now, Dorothy is a journalist who's been reporting for about 35 years in the Solomon Islands. She is the founder and editor of Melanesian News Network, and she's also a member of the Media Association of the Solomon Islands. It is really wonderful to be speaking with Dorothy because she certainly is one of the important voices on the ground, giving us a far more realistic understanding of what life is truly like for everyday Solomon Islanders, and also giving us a different perspective on some of the geopolitical issues that we talk about here in Australia and what the view truly is from the Solomon Islands. Now, that is pretty much the title of a piece that Dorothy has written for the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. It is called The View from Solomon Islands. Our priority is running water, not geopolitics. So without further ado, I welcome onto the program Dorothy Wickham. Hi there, Dorothy, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the program as well. It's a real pleasure. I have been following your work for quite a while and I really appreciated your different perspective when Australia, especially in our last federal election, we got very, very preoccupied with the Solomon Islands, especially because of its connection with China and the security deal that was signed. It certainly became such a big issue here domestically for us. So it really was quite helpful to get a sense from you as to what the view was there in the Solomon Islands. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I wanted to actually start from your perspective, from a local perspective. For those of us in Australia who aren't familiar with what life is like at the moment in Solomon Islands, could you share with us some of the local Pacific priorities, especially as you give some examples in your piece around water and power supplies in Honiara? Could you set the scene for us as to what some of the day-to-day challenges are for locals? Yeah, it, it's hard to, to understand until you you live here as a, as a Solomon Islander in an average suburb, the issues that we face every day. Some of them are the very high cost of power. And when we do have blackouts, sometimes it can go for a day. And then when we have water cuts as well, and the water cost is is not cheap either. So for an average Solomon Islander who maybe works in government or a private company, but is not sitting, you know, in middle management, but is just an uh, ordinary employee, that it is a, it is a bit of a struggle every day. And then worse, worse is that we have very bad public transport system, which also hinders the quick and timely movement of kids that go to school and uh, the cost of, of them getting to school every day is also another cost to the families. So it's, it's um, I, I always say to a lot of other Solomon Islanders, we must not forget 
there are actually a lot of salmon islanders here who can't afford having a refrigerator in their homes, can't afford a proper stove. You know, even, even here in the city in Honiara, that is also a struggle for a lot of families. So it's very hard for you to talk about issues of good governance and issues of climate change. And I, I always say, when I do my work, I always say, if it doesn't affect their shelter, their stomach and their pocket, people don't take notice of it. And so that's basically where we're at at the moment. And it is, it's sad because we weren't like this. We went back 10 years in terms of our development because we had the um, ethnic tensions here, which uh, broke out around 1999, came to 2003. Then we had the regional assistance mission led by Australia come in and they stayed for 15 years. So it's been a really tough climb back up for us as a country. And of course, it's affected our economy. And then comes along COVID. And then we have rights. We have a right. So it's it's all affecting business and, and the way um, the economy is, is working as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for painting us a really excellent picture there, Dorothy. And also in the piece, you kind of describe for us what the main jobs are or the ways that people make money in the Solomon Islands and also just support themselves with food, for example. So you say that a lot of islanders are creating their own gardens and fishing for food. So there's that aspect. There's also the main export industries being timber and tuna. So I also wanted to get a sense from you as to what the employment situation is like in the Solomon Islands and also looking at the youth population, how they're affected by the employment situation? Mm, well, if you, look at, if you look at our statistics, we have a youth population between the age of 15 to around 35, between 70 and 76% of our population. So there's a lot of young people out here looking for jobs. And we don't have the business sector to support this. The government is, I think, one of the biggest employers in the country. And, and then you have bigger companies like, you know, Altoona industry employs a lot of people. And then you've got um, the palm oil industry, the logging industry. But even then, they're quite limited. If you're looking at 76% of the population, that's a huge percentage. And then, then if, you, if you look at what's happening now in Australia, where Australia has opened their doors to seasonal workers from the Pacific, Solomon Islands in just one in one meat abattoir has about 350 Solomon Islanders working there. That should tell you how many people are here looking for jobs. We are close to 5,000 workers overseas now. This is between Australia and New Zealand. And I heard just recently there's about 15,000 people waiting for passports to apply for seasonal work. And that is not even nowhere close to providing the job opportunities and income opportunities for young Solomon Islanders. And clearly there have been concerns as well when Solomon Islanders do get to Australia for those types of jobs that there is some level in some cases of exploitation and poor treatment and underpayment as well. Yeah, you know, we've had those cases and, and I think there's a project now called Palm and, and they, they, they have officers travelling to the farms, checking on the workers, ensuring that they are being looked after. Because a lot of them you have to understand too are uh, some of them are not very highly educated. Some are, but most of, them, most of them aren't. So just understanding labor laws here, they do not know mm. how much more the Australian system. So it's been quite a, a struggle for the officials in, on the Australian end and some end to ensure that whilst we're giving them the opportunity to work, that they, they get 100% benefits of, 
of what they're doing. Because if it was done right, then it's a real big win-win situation for Australia and Solomons. Australia gets the labor it needs, Solomons gets the employment it needs for its young people. So, but it is going to be refined and you know improved as it goes along. But as you know, with labor, there's always people out there who, who are going to be, you know, bad employers. Some will, of course, exploit some workers. And I'm not only talking Solomon Islanders. Mm. They could be Asians. They could be Pacific Islanders. Huh? Absolutely. It happens everywhere, doesn't it? I wanted to draw in education because, as you mentioned in the piece, and I've heard you say before, education is the key. I remember you saying that Fiji has a free education system, but the system in Solomon Islands is different and it seems that there are barriers to access for education. So could you give us an idea of how difficult it is to get that basic education, the kind of primary school, early school year education, as well as more higher education? Yeah, well, I think our, our education system is is very old. We need to review it. Uh, we need to look at the curriculum and adjust it based on on our needs as a country, and also the fact that um, our population is young, marrying young, having kids young. So our growth rate is really high, and uh, the government is not catching up by providing schools. So you you have. Uh, children who have to live somewhere else to go to school at a very young age, which is not good for them socially and uh, emotionally to be away from their parents to be going to school. And then there are kids who walk distances to get to school. So it's it's not easy. Education is a privilege here. It's still, mm. it's still a bit of a struggle. So uh, And then if you have their parents struggling every day just to put food on the table, how much more to get their kids a proper lunch to go to school with you know, the bus fares and transport money to get to school. And then on top of that, paying for any extra um, activities that the school wants them to to be part of. These are the really real realities of an average Solomon Island uh, family. And education, why I say education is the key, is because we have really lost ground with our education. And I think we lost ground during the tensions because when the, when the tensions came, all our schools were closed for a couple of years. And then we we were pushed back in a way and our schools were, you know, disrupted and a lot of properties were lost and all that. So it really affected the children of that generation. But the children who were born after, say, 2003 onwards, when all the governance system was starting to get improved, you know, by the Australian Assistance Mission, which is the Ramsey Mission, even though it the school started again then, but the quality was n- never the same again now. And government's got a hell of a long way to go yet to ensure that our education system does provide what it's supposed to for, for our young people here. And as you say at the beginning of your piece that the population of the Solomon Islands spans about 700,000 people, but obviously it's not just one island. There are numerous islands and, of course, six main islands that are most habitable um, and most developed, but there are also a whole range of other smaller islands, some of which aren't lived in or on. And so, you know, it's quite an interesting way that the population is dispersed and additionally the different languages spoken and the prevalence of English as well, with 2% of the population being fluent in English. So are you able to, I guess, reflect on that 
element because I um I did watch a panel that you were on and you were talking about national identity and the fact that the population is so dispersed and there's more of an identity with a certain island or province, it means that the idea of an overarching national identity isn't necessarily present um, on the ground. It's only more present, as you said in that conversation, when you go overseas and you then distinguish yourself as a Solomon Islander. So could you tell us a little bit about how Solomon Islanders see themselves if they're living on a, in a different province? How do you distinguish your identity? Yeah, well, you see... A lot of things we do is based on our language or our dialects. Huh? So you would call yourself from a certain region because you speak the same language. Or you, if you say, oh, where's your mother from? And I, of course, would say Malaita and my father's from the western side of the country, uh, which with two different cultures, two different languages. It's very hard to get this sense of of national identity because we, we and also we have uh, three different ethnic groups here. We have Melanesians. Polynesians and Micronesians in one country. So it's, it's a, these are very different cultures as well. Mm. And uh, I, I think the mistake government has made over the last 30 years is thinking that this is, this is going to come naturally. Governments have to work to create national identity. It, it has to be part of their, of, their, of, their, of their work is to ensure that, they, that they're finding whatever it is that they can hook this on and, and build a sense of national unity, whether it's through the education system, whether it's through sports, you know, churches, but even churches, people then align themselves to their different churches, which then is divided by the different doctrines. So you have different parts of the country where one certain church is stronger than the other, and so you see them stick together. So it it's a very difficult country to build that sense of, of identity. And unlike Fiji, they, they speak one language. Yeah, mm. they have a common language, which is much easier when they when they're dealing with uh, branding in terms of um, branding for tourism, marketing themselves as a country. Then you look at places like us and PNG, Papua New Guinea. We have a lot of languages and dialects, so it's very difficult for you get people to think as one. People are gonna think usually they think uh, clans, tribes, and then uh, re- uh, provinces, regions. And then you come to the national level. Um, and even at national level, it's, it's just that's where the gap is. Nobody's thinking here, being in the Solomon Islands, as being, I'm a Solomon Islander. Mm. Everyone's thinking, oh, you know, my province is better than that province because of this and that. And then if something goes wrong, they go, oh, it's that province. They're not contributing to the national purse in terms of revenue. And it just goes on and on. Government really needs to look at this and to spend money and time on a campaign to build national unity. I know government's thinking that the Pacific Games we're going to host in November is going to bring people together, but that's only for two weeks. And that is not Solomon Islanders coming together. It's the whole Pacific coming together. We need something that's going to pull us together and hold us together, not only physically in activities, but psychologically and emotionally. We've got to start thinking as one, one group of people instead of thinking of ourselves coming from different regions. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. You also say in the piece that there is, I guess, a different way of viewing leadership in the Solomon Islands versus a type of Western style of leadership that has been transplanted or tried to be forced upon uh, Solomon Islands culture. And, you know, you say that 
there is a kind of more traditional way of looking at a politician and when voting and elections come along, that there's a different criteria as well for how people on the ground might choose a politician. It may not necessarily be based on economic arguments or policy debates, but on things that are based on their day-to-day lives, things that affect them very much directly. Could you expand a bit on that point of the point that you were making around the type of leadership, political leadership that exists at the moment in the Solomon Islands, but also um, the expectations of the population and what they want their leaders to be doing? It's funny that that idea that people think that we are voting based on policy or on on, uh, economic arguments when, you know, political parties are arguing or if politicians are out there campaigning, we definitely are not voting on those issues. We never have. There's only a few percentage of Solomon Islands who vote on that. And we've had very highly educated Solomon Islands running for politics who were very good people and should have been chosen. They weren't chosen. And and this is because of the way we we look at leadership. We're still viewing leadership in the traditional sense. To us, a leader is somebody who takes care of the village, who's always there for the community. Uh, You know, and and, uh, I think this is true in all Melanesian society. You know, if, if you were there at every death, they are contributing at every death or every wedding or family disaster. You were there providing and helping out and being seen by the community as taking part. Then you are considered a leader. They look at you as somebody they respect because they know you care about them. Now you try and use the Western standard of, of politics and go and tell them that if you were in power, that you would ensure that the economy would grow and then we'd have better schools and, you know, we'd make sure that, you know, government would make policies that enrich their lives or make things easier for them. But to break it down to the point of they understand that this care that they're expecting is going to come at some financial cost and that financial cost has to come from somewhere, the revenue to cover this financial cost. That's where we need to, I always say, join the dots so they understand you know, that everything's connected. But this is still not happening. And and that's why I kept coming back to education. People still think that our national parliamentarians are there to help them individually. So when they don't have school fees for their kids or they have a very sick person in the family or in the community, they come to their politicians for help, for financial help. Well, in the Western system, we we all know the politicians are, are supposed to be you know, making legislation, you know, that's their job. They sit in parliament and they, you know, decide on these things. It's the government machinery that provides the assistance that you need individually. So these are the kind of issues that needs to be understood by a lot of Solomon Islanders. But you can't get to that point without the level of education that we need to ensure that there's understanding of these issues so that when they vote, they're voting on it, on what is appropriately designed for the system that we're using, which is the Westminster system. So as a result of that, a lot of our politicians are put under a lot of stress. You visit politicians' homes here all the time, you'll see there's a lot of people coming from the villages, from their constituencies, asking. Every day they've got people coming, looking for assistance for their church, for their school, uh, for their community activities, for their school fees, for building of homes. And this is where the pressure on parliamentarians then makes them make decisions that are not in national interest. It's based on their constituency because our national members of parliament are voted in 
from constituencies. We call them constituencies. So in a province, you'll have, say, 10, 15, 20 constituencies in a province or less than that. One province is maybe two constituencies or one. So it depends on how how big this province is and then how big the mm-hmm. constituencies are because not all constituencies also come with the same population, the same needs. I've heard men who are very highly educated and who are smart and should be in politics who say, you know, I was thinking of running, but then my wife said, no, she doesn't want a house full of people every day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you can't get the good people running and you yeah. can't get the good people winning either. So, you know, it's it's very difficult. Oh, that does sound really frustrating. I'm sure that must cause a lot of tension for the wives who probably feel like they have to support their husband politicians if they're getting that many visitors, presumably. Well, even their children get affected by it because their homes yeah. are full of people every day. So they, they don't have the privacy and the and the space for their kids to, you know, come home and have their rooms to themselves and have the kind of spacing that a Western family expects you know we don't have that you know in a room you might have few relatives who come with kids and end up their kids will be sleeping with your kids and your whole sitting room is full of people downstairs it's full of people and you're gonna have to make another outhouse there to accommodate the men who are gonna sit up all night and keep talking and drinking tea until daylight and then you're also having to cough up for all the tea and the sugar and the milk that they're gonna have to drink when they're talking all night so it's Mm. (laughs) it's, and I, i keep saying a lot of our consultants and uh, people who come in, say, from Australia, for example. I'm not saying those only Australians. I'm saying every donor, every organization, whether they are an NGO or what. When you have expatriates coming in here, they are living in certain parts of town that they have standby generators, they have standby water, they have provided cars, they have provided fuel, petrol for their cars, and then they work in air conditioning buildings, mm. right? Okay. These are the kind of people who are expected to drive the change and the projects that are happening here in the country. Now, how do they drive it if they're living in isolation or in in cocoons like that? Mm. Because they can never relate to what we're facing. I mean, it's just like a Solomon Islander coming to work in Australia and realizing that it's actually quite expensive to live in Australia. Mm. Some Solomon Islanders didn't know that until they arrived there. Like you, you, you pay for parking. In Honiara, you don't pay for parking. You just park wherever you want. You know, you cross a bridge, you have to pay toll, right? They, they never knew those things. What they saw on TV or on the internet is they think the Australian lifestyle is easy, but they don't realize it comes at a cost. And and this is where tax is important. So this is where I'm saying this joining of dots is not happening here. And this is the joining of dots can only happen if we're educated enough to understand this. Yeah, no, the the message makes absolute sense to me. I'm speaking with Dorothy Wickham, journalist and founding editor of the Melanesian News Network. Dorothy, you talk about development. Obviously, that is a another crucial component because there is a huge development gap between, for example, Australia and Solomon Islands. It's very hard to even measure just how big the gap is, just like you've described. And there are a whole range of donor countries and NGOs and partners and bilateral arrangements between countries. But you say that there's this new breed of politician from the Solomon Islands and that they have a kind of different expectation of that donor relationship. You say that they want equal partnerships, that they want to benefit I guess, more from the arrangement instead of, for example, 
a Western country coming in using all of their own contractors and all of their own workers to build something and then leaving because obviously that doesn't result in a knowledge transfer or a skill transfer or a money transfer, you know, investing in local companies and small businesses. Could you explain to us a little bit about the development situation as it stands now, perhaps a contrast or not between how it was in the past and how it's starting to work in 2023? Yes, I did mention there's a change in mindset now. Solomon Islanders before would accept what is given and not complain. But now there's this new generation now. They they feel that they need to be equal partners in all this. And I know that they, they are there are people out in Australia and other the donor countries who are saying, why are we even giving them anything anymore, seeing they're complaining all the time. But the, the key issue here is also is that giving donations to a country, you also have to understand that you must make it work and it must last. There must be some legacy there. Mm. Now, it's no use coming in and starting a four-year contract or a four-year project funded by Australia, US, New Zealand, UK, Japan, wherever they're coming from. And then at the end of it, close this office down and walk away and expect this country to, to grow from that. It doesn't work that way. And, and that's one of the reasons why Solomonales are now saying we should be the ones heading the projects. Yes, we will accept foreigners coming in. Yes, because we need their experience and their knowledge because they've been down this road before. They are countries older than ours. They've gone through these issues. They have knowledge of it, but they must also understand that they're dealing with different people, different mindset. So we are dealing with Solomon Island mindset. You can't have a Solomon Island mindset in Fiji. You can have a Fijian mindset in PNG or in PNG having one in Vanuatu. So how much more are you expecting an Australian mindset to come and change Solomon mindset when you don't even understand that mindset? You don't live in the economic reality. I mean, it, it's funny. Solomon Islanders, even very senior Solomon Islanders, they travel overseas, they go to hotels, and they ask for credit cards, and they start looking at each other because hardly Solomon Islanders don't have credit cards. We don't live on credit cards. We don't have access to that kind of credit. It's those small details that people forget that make the difference between us and you. You know, mm-hmm. and so when you're talking about, if we say, okay, we're gonna, you know, build your market there, because it's gonna bring down people from the from the mountains to bring their food down to the to the market here, and they're gonna have access to selling. But who are they selling to? You're selling to the same people in the region who are struggling for money. Are they gonna buy my things from that market? Well, they are the same people who are bringing down the stock. They're the same people who are gonna start looking, thinking, okay, who's gonna buy all this? So end up the drift into the urban centers like Honiara is doubling every year because there's no cash in the provinces. And these are the things that, and then if you're saying, okay, a woman can have access to this market, she's going to bring her her crops down, we'll make a road here. But where's the truck? Where's the finance for this person, this community to own a truck? And even if there is a truck, these women have to pay to get on these trucks and they pay for their fares and then they have to pay for freight. So where do these women get that cash again? I mean, it's all these small details that needs to be understood. So you can't just build a market and a road and a wharf and expect economic activity to be triggered. It doesn't work that way. It makes me think about some of the infrastructure projects that are currently underway. We hear about, for example, the Japanese who are funding an airport upgrade. They're trying to fix some of the roads. Australia has the Solomon Islands infrastructure project 
obviously the US has just reestablished its own embassy in Honiara after a very long absence. And that seems to have been triggered by a whole lot of infrastructure and development activity by the Chinese in Solomon Islands. And for anyone who's not familiar with the backstory, of course, we heard when it happened in 2019 that Solomon Islands switched allegiance and instead of recognising Taiwan, they recognised the People's Republic of China and Beijing and apart from obviously one province, I believe, Malaysia, who was still recognising Taipei and Taiwan. Uh, But that certainly did seem to stimulate further infrastructure and development activity by the Chinese, although it already existed before then. So I wanted to get a sense from you about the effect of that diplomatic switch and the level of Chinese activity, because you point out in the piece, you know, that a lot of it is quite confined to, for example, Honiara. So a lot of the Honiara locals are very aware of just how much uh, Chinese money is going into development, but then those outside of that that area are perhaps not as much aware and it's not as visible to them. That's right. And I, I think this is another thing that our donors need to remember too, is that what the Chinese are doing here in Honiara is address the national demands of the national government, which is we try to host the Pacific Games. They can't build us a huge stadium. We complain all the time about our hospital. We don't have a cardiac unit. So the Chinese are going to build us a cardiac unit. So, but then the main hospital itself is not is not improving. The beds have not increased. And so it's the National Referral Hospital, which means all the serious cases in the provinces and in the rural areas get referred to Honiara. And so we're bottlenecking again here. Mm. And, you know, Donyara is not a big space. Government-owned land here is not big. So we are now gotten to the point, too, that we're infringing on customary land. Because, as you know, 80% of our land here in the Solomons is owned by people, tribes, clans, and that they, it's not individually owned. So if you want it to grow and provide the infrastructure and the things, then you have to be negotiating with landowners. And then with the kind of mindset and the level of education we have amongst our landowners, it's very difficult for government to get projects off the ground. We've had big national projects trying to open up in Malaita, but there was so much land disputes in Malaita and in other provinces as well. And so these projects have been ongoing for 10 years. They're still in negotiation, in and out of courts. Government's tried so many times to try and open up other urban centres to carry some of the burden so that we... We're decentralizing things out of Honiara. But it's still difficult. I mean, we've got more than 900 islands. And mm-hmm. like I said, it's six major ones. So the services that the donors provide, they must look towards the provinces. And also, if only government was spending as much as it was on Honiara into education in the provinces, then we lift the average, uh, average education level and then we'll have more better understanding of these issues. And so that decisions made in the rural areas in terms of land development and access to money-making businesses or ventures will will happen because people then know what to do with with their land. At the moment, nobody really knows what to do with their land because they're not educated enough to know whether there are opportunities out there for them. Yeah. And where do you think the opportunity is to create that change in education? Is it only going to come from the government or does it need to also come from external partners like, for example, Australia? Are are outside countries helpful in any way in this regard or are they unhelpful? I'll tell you, I know Australia 
and a lot of the donor countries donate to um, our education system, but it's it's being channeled through to through the national government. And as we've seen in the past, it, it doesn't work when you do that. Mm. But the thing is to also encourage private schools and to encourage the review of education. And this is where we need the assistance of donors to guide us into what is or what what are the needs uh, or to tailor our education to our our needs as a country. I mean, we have rural training centers, they call. This is schools that are set up to provide medium-level skills like electricians, carpenters, plumbers, uh, hospitality workers. I think that that's one area that the donors should really push their money into so that we get skilled workers. At the same time, they're getting a skill, they're lifting their education level so that when they come out of, of these institutions, then they're able to create their own jobs instead of looking for jobs. And if they created one business, maybe one can employ one or two people. And if there are more businesses like that, so it's usually in the medium and small scale of business that we, we should be looking at. Because if we're looking at setting up factories, I don't think our culture is very good with factories. I mean, we have a big canning factory here, but it's taken Soltuna a lot of years to, to get to where it is today. And it has a really good model. But that's not to say that model is going to work in other provinces because it's the, the, the tuna cannery is based in the Western province, which is have a very, very different culture, land ownership uh, models are very different to other parts of the country. If we can, say, look more at health, education, tourism and agriculture, these are the four things that we really need to push. Because if we, if we get those basic, baselines right then we can have a have a more stable society agriculture yep. we don't need much because we already own the land mm. but we need we need the, the education and the assistance to know how to utilize our agriculture resources like land because this is another thing that our leaders have complained about we are right next door to australia and getting exports into australia is very difficult now, we could be exporting a lot of products to Australia, but we can't because there's so many requirements so many islands can't meet. And so what do we do? So mm. these are the things that we really need to look at. Yeah, and there certainly sounds like there's a role for diplomacy there for the Australian embassy or, or office there to try and facilitate an easier export-import industry um, between the two countries. I wanted to jump just to a different topic here, Dorothy. There was an issue when I think it was the Chinese foreign minister came to visit Solomon Islands and there was a press conference to be given and a very limited number of questions were available um, to be asked by the local media. And I know that you're very much involved in the local media there, being a member of the Media Association and obviously founder and editor of the Melanesian News Network. And um, I wanted to get your assessment about the level of free press and, you know, vibrant press that exists in Solomon Islands and their ability to perform their role, to hold government to account. And one other example to draw in there might be the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, the public broadcaster, where it was reported in August last year that the government was supposedly going to vet the news stories on the public broadcaster. Could you give us your assessment and analysis of the broader press environment that you're part of? Well, I think 
in terms of freedom to to write stories and be critical of the government and you know whatever is it we we do have that freedom the 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 access to information from our government the current government is the is the difficulty i mean of course you can get press statements from them you can cover you know ceremonies or events that they they do but then when you when it comes to asking the questions that we need to ask that's where we are finding it a bit difficult and this never used to be the case however i must say that this has also been a bit of a backlash from our government against the foreign press in this country when they they came in here covering the switch to china and then the security agreement that solomon islands then signed with china and it just made this government so anti media that it's actually spilled over to the local media and uh the media association has been calling on government to say we are not your enemy we are all trying to do what's best for all solomon islands So for us local media we need the information and we need access so that we can ask the questions that some analysts need to understand. Now I I had talked about education levels, I had talked about attitudes, mindsets. It all comes back down to that because the the role of the media in the Solomons is very very different from our western media. We are there to share information, to question government but at the same time we have to play the role of awareness we have to make people understand issues so that they're able to make informed decisions and when if government's not explaining things and not opening its door to be able to explain these things then it's not the foreign press in australia or australian government that will get affected it's solomon islanders ordinary solomon islanders who live in the village who don't get the right information I'm speaking with Dorothy Wickham journalist and founding editor of the Melanesian News Network Dorothy, I did want to pick up on what you just mentioned there about the security deal and I mentioned it at the start of our interview because obviously here in Australia there was a massive overreaction to the announcement of that security deal, a lot of paranoia about China. It's not a new thing unfortunately in Australia. It's only been developing more and more. It's gotten quite ridiculous with the AUKUS agreement, but I wanted to get a sense from you as to how you saw the international response to the Solomon Islands and China security deal and also perhaps how the government perceived the international response because there have been these comparisons between the AUKUS agreement and Australia not consulting its neighbors in the Pacific Islands with Solomon Islands and its security deal with China that's right i mean this is where politics is always a game of of people playing power and being in very selfish in their motives because they are not looking at the at the overall picture now solomon islands by signing that security agreement was not thinking about the rest of the region they were thinking of themselves and then now australia with its orcus deal is not thinking about the rest of the region either they're thinking of their own reasons so i mean how can we as a region work together to combat things like climate change and that when these other things that we we should be able to work together on and we can't we're looking at our own personal and all national issues that we're not looking at the region as a whole region how are we going to move forward as a region to protect you know our people our resources now australia is of course we know is very worried about the chinese presence in the solomons 
and also the secure. I think the secure deal is the thing that worries them the most, and hence that the reason to go along with this idea. But then uh, they should be also thinking now by getting that here, and if there's there's a disaster that happens with this submarine, it's going to be in 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 our region, in our sea. Now, how does that affect the rest of us? And then Solomon Islands government too never thought of that when it signed the security deal. And what if the Chinese starts deciding to interfere in our local politics by using military or police presence in this country? And how are our neighbors going to view that and view us? So, you know, these kind of decisions can escalate to things that we never thought would be possible. But <laughs> who would who say that China won't, won't ever invade the Pacific? We never thought Japan was going to start a war. We never thought Adolf Hitler was going to try and take over Europe. These things happened, you know. But then it's in the regional interest for us to try and avoid these things and to also protect our natural resources and, and our people, their, their, their right to have a clean sea, clean air, clean water. These, these are basic human rights. And if, if governments are making decisions on security now, not so much on people's needs and, and security, then this is where we're going to go down and we're going to go down the wrong road again. Yeah. It reminded me of um, an issue that I've seen come up for the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific and, you know, more broadly, the Pacific Islands, thinking about them in particular and the nuclear legacy of, for example, atomic tests. It's obviously a, something that's very front of mind, I think, for people who were directly affected by nuclear testing, especially in the Pacific. And that is the situation in Japan where the Japanese government is looking to release 1.3 million tonnes of treated radioactive water from the Fukushima disaster. And it's caused a lot of outcry, not just in China and South Korea, but also a number of Pacific Island nations have expressed their concern, given that they rely so much on fishing and their fishing industry as just one example. I wanted to get a sense from you as to whether any of these types of environmental issues are making the consciousness either of the government or the people of Solomon Islands. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, we are people of the sea. Mm. We depend on the sea for, you know, a lot of our food and um, finances. We make money from, you know, a lot of uh, the government makes a lot of money from our tuna and people live off what's in the sea, not only fish, you've got shells, crabs, seaweed that we eat also. And this comes back to what I said. If governments keep making decisions on just their national interest and not looking at an overall region or even the world from a larger perspective, then we, we're never going to be able to solve these issues because everybody's basing their decisions on something that is of their own need. I mean, look at what happened in the Marshalls. Hmm. You know, forevermore they cease not, you know, not producing the kind of food they should be able to access. And when they don't access this kind of food they traditionally were were living off, then it affects their health and their long-term uh, prosperity. And that's going to happen to us in the Pacific if Japan decides to go ahead with this. I mean, we are so advanced in technology. Isn't there another way of doing this? Yeah, I mean, they go and sit. They go and sit in United Nations. They go and sit in NATO. They go and sit in all these big organizations. I mean, couldn't they have come up with an option, another option? You know, if 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 the governments need to work with the private sector to find other options for nuclear waste, then find it for goodness' sake. 
because we're running out of time. We don't have much time anymore. If you think that climate change is not an issue, then you've got to really think again. You have to come live here mm. or maybe live in Australia when you, where you get floods and big fires and here in the islands, of, of some of our islands here are now inundated with salt water. I mean, that's the reality. And if we're going to keep on playing with the environment, then the consequences will only come back to us later on. And it, it won't be you and I. It'll be my grandchildren and maybe your grandchildren who will suffer the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving me that insight. Dorothy, kind of on a similar, a related note, deforestation and logging is both an industry, but also at times an environmental issue, depending on how sensitively and responsibly logging occurs. And different countries in the area, like for example, the Philippines, have a major issue with logging and especially illegal logging. But obviously in the Solomon Islands, they're reliant on logging as one of the key industries. And there are some major countries like China and Malaysia who bring in workers and extract logs and timber from Solomon Islands and export it back home. And I I guess I wanted to get a better understanding of the situation there and the local perspective on how to balance industry, especially in those areas like fishing and logging, where there's a a great sensitivity to the land and an understanding of a close connection with the land of all the people on Solomon Islands. How do they see that balance or or how do they see that government or companies might be or should be approaching a balance? Well, you know, like like in anything else, it's how much you take that's going to cost you. And if you don't put it back in, if we're harvesting our logs in the Solomons and we, the government, and, and they know that it's a big earner for the government, then we should be going into reforestation, sustainable forestry. I mean, we've got all the land here. Government should be out there getting people to plant a thousand trees a month or something and get all our trees growing again because we are running out of logs. We're running out of virgin forests. And and for a small country like ours, even though we have 900 islands and six big ones, we're not as big as Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea, its forest, some some parts of its forest is totally untouched because it's a huge, huge land. While Solomon Islands, we are smaller islands. So, of course, if you keep logging at the rate you're going, then we, we're going to lose them all soon. I know some places, they don't have very much big trees anymore, and they're still cutting them because mm-hmm. these are 10-year-old, 15-year-old trees that just came up after the previous two rounds of logging. And then it affects our rivers, our water sources, and then it, it causes erosion, which then affects our reefs and our sea. So it, it's just common sense that if you want to, keep on making money out of logging, you've got to plant the trees again. You don't just take, take, take and not put back into the ground. It's just like a vegetable patch, you know. You plant mm. the vegetables, you harvest it, you've got to replant it again if you want vegetables again. It's just it's just common sense. We've done farming for centuries. We should know that. We should look at forestry the same way. We harvest, we must replant immediately, not 10 years down, 20 years down the track because you're going to run short of trees and then you affect the climate. If you know that your trees close to a river, then don't cut them because you know it's going to affect your river source and it's going to affect your water source. But then everybody's making decisions on financial benefits. And the government sees it as a big revenue earner, so they're not going to curb it. Mm. And then landowners are also seeing it as a way of earning quick cash because they don't have the cash in the rural areas. So they give in to the loggers, not realizing that they're making only maybe 
1% of the overall revenue from this forest that they've decided to give to a logger. Yeah, it's a very unequal exchange there, isn't it? Uh, Just finally, Dorothy, we've talked about the fact that there are big differences in the types of lives that we lead here in Australia versus in Solomon Islands. I wonder, is there anything that you wish that Australians or even the Australian government would better understand about Solomon Islands or the needs and wants of Solomon Islanders that we just don't get? Well, like I said, every every culture has a different way of communicating information to its people. You come from a Western society, there's a more higher level of education, so more understanding of, of uh, the things that run a country. Why you pay fees at a toll, why you, you pay for parking. You look at the context of Solomonales where they've lived at a very subsistence level. That understanding that you have to pay tax to it, to get the kind of services that you complain about. A lot of Solomonales don't understand that. So we, we have a lot of people working in the informal sector, which is, means they're not paying tax. They don't even have bank accounts. And then we're expecting them to vote on national and economic issues when they don't even understand what how that relates to them individually in their lives. So if, if donors come into this country, they must have that clear understanding. If you want to really understand it, then you've got to put away your, your cars, your homes that you live in here in Honiara, and you go and sit in a village and you live and eat like them. You go and wash your clothes at a river. You carry buckets of water to get it to your house. Then you know the reality. But you can't say you know us until you live the, our lives. And just like some of us are now finding out, they go to Australia, now they realize why Australians are like that, because their society is run in a certain way. And that's the reason they have good hospitals. That's the way they that's why they have good roads, because they pay tax. And taxes are high. So then that's the reason is to have a good society, a good functioning society. And that's why police has the resources to do their work, because you pay taxes. You run a business, you have a job, you have to pay taxes. So it's a difference in understanding, in simple, really village level understanding of how the government machinery works and what government should be providing for you and how much it costs government to provide for you. This is the key, I think. Yeah. Dorothy, it's been really, really wonderful to hear from you. It's been very, very illuminating for me and I'm sure everyone listening right now. I very much appreciate your time and I do hope that people can read your piece in full and all the other brilliant opinion articles and work that you've been doing. This particular piece is called The View from Solomon Islands, Our Priority is Running Water, Not Geopolitics, which is in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. But you've also written, of course, for The Guardian, for The New York Times and other publications. So uh, I do very much thank you for your time and insight today. It's really been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've just been speaking with Dorothy Wickham, founder and editor of Melanesian News Network. She's a journalist and has been reporting in the Solomon Islands for over 35 years and uh, is also a member of the Media Association of Solomon Islands. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.